Hi everyone, it is my pleasure to read the Bible for you. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus said, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. It's great to be at church with you for a new year, first Sunday of 2024. Uh, someone will sort it out. Uh, this morning, it's a bit of a strange, uh, strange Sunday. We, uh, we, we're starting a new series, and then we're stopping it next week. Uh, but uh, th- that's just uh, the quirks of timing. Next week, we have our big question series, which runs for three weeks through January. Uh, This Sunday, we're starting a series in the book of Matthew. I like to help us spend the first term of the year thinking through one of the Gospels. It's a great way for us to just remind ourselves about the central character of the Christian faith. And so Matthew is our Gospel for this year, for first term. Uh, We're starting it this this week, then we'll pause for three weeks and come back to it. Um, And it's a bit strange as well, because if you've been with us throughout uh, the Christmas period... We've actually been in Matthew's Gospel anyway as the starting point for our reflections about Christmas, but bear with us as we continue down this path. I have a question for you as we start. If someone was to tell your story, who are the key characters that they would tell? Who would they reflect on? Who, especially of your family, might they include in your story? I guess they'd include your parents because they had some part to play in bringing you into this world. Um, But apart from your parents, whose story would they tell? In Jesus' life, 
he, we know from the other Gospels that he had other siblings. He had about six, we think, uh, four, men, four brothers and two sisters. But interestingly, in Jesus' life, they don't actually, the Gospel writers, those who tell the story of Jesus' life, don't really focus on his siblings at all. We know little about them. We learn a little bit about James, one of his brothers, but only after his resurrection and ascension, when James writes the letter, we really know very little about Jesus' siblings, but we know a lot about Jesus' cousin. John the Baptist, who we just heard about, Jesus' cousin, we hear about him in all four of the Gospels. If you've read any of the Gospels, actually, if you've read a few of them, what you will notice is they all start in slightly different ways. They have different focuses for the, for the beginning of the story of Jesus. But what's common across all four of them, actually, is this person, John the Baptist. All four of them, regardless of where they're starting from and what they see as their primary agenda, spend time thinking about John the Baptist. So my question for us is, what's so special about John the Baptist? What's so special about this guy? Why is it that all four of them will spend time thinking about him? And in our passage this morning, read by Evie, thank you Evie, good job, we see hints, Old Testament hints, which help us to understand why John the Baptist is such a crucial person in the story of Jesus. This is not unusual, actually. As we study Matthew's Gospel, what we will come to see is that Matthew has a particular desire to explain Jesus to Jewish people. And so it's regular in his story of Jesus' life to include things from, from Jewish history and culture and Jewish sayings and writings, especially the Old Testament, to understand Jesus. And in the first four verses of uh, this morning's passage, we see three different things, three different kind of hints from Jewish history and culture to help us understand John the Baptist, actually. The first is that in those days, we're told, first verse, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. The wilderness is a crucial place for the people of God in the Old Testament. That's where God revealed himself. It's where God prepared them. If you remember the story of Exodus, after being brought out of Egypt, into, to, before they come into Canaan, they go through the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness that God prepares them for the new land. Uh, we're, told that jo- we're told about John's clothing. Uh, John's clothing was made of camel's hair. And he had a letter... Now, the Bible writers don't talk about people's clothing that often. Really, probably the only other famous time they talk about anyone's clothing is Jesus at the cross. But here, Matthew is at pains to spell out what John wore. The reason is because John is wearing something, which in 2 Kings 1, we're told Elijah, the great prophet of the Old Testament, was wearing. And, and I think Matthew here is connecting the two of them. In a sense, John the Baptist is a second Elijah. And this is important because also in the Old Testament, in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, the great prophecy which the Jews were waiting for was that another Elijah would come. And so John the Baptist is this second Elijah character. And thirdly, we get this quote from Isaiah 40. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now again, this quote... John the Baptist would have said a whole heap of things in his ministry. But this quote is the one that the gospel writers across the board repeat. Because John the Baptist is doing this central task 
I remember being in Washington, D.C. Uh, on a holiday many years ago when suddenly the, the roads just went quiet. Cars stopped flowing. People kind of had a sense. They stepped back. And then, of course, what came was police motorbikes, police cars, three uh, heavily tinted black vehicles, followed by more police cars and more motorcycles because it was the President of the United States. The roads had been cleared for his entry and then departure. In the old times, in Jesus' times, it was not uncommon for someone, if the king was coming, for them to literally redo the road, relay it, cobblestones, or flatten out the road so that when the king came, he could travel unencumbered, preparing the way. You see, John is preparing the way. He's preparing the way for the entry of this person. And he's singly important because John is like the, the first person to open the door to the new kingdom. John's arrival, though, is even more extraordinary when we consider the history and the time frame in which this takes place. If you were to read the Old Testament from beginning to end chronologically, you get to Malachi it's the last book of the Old Testament. It's also the last time that the Jews hear from God for 400 years. Now, 400 years is a very, very long time. We, we talk about it because if you know the Exodus story, there was 400 years again of, uh, of silence. But 400 years is a very long time. If you think about it, that European settlement is only 200 years old in our country. 400 years, the Jews did not hear. They didn't have a prophet. They didn't have a new piece of writing. They had nothing to draw upon for 400 years. And then John the Baptist arrives, seemingly out of the blue. And what he brings is a fairly, fairly ominous message. Uh, what we would like to hear, I don't think, what we, when we think about preparing the way for, for the Lord... We think of, you know, pleasantries, like God loves you, he has a, a pleasing and fulfilling plan for your life. But note how John the Baptist prepares people. He says, there we go. He says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness and saying what? God loves you. Repent, he says. Repent for the kingdom of God has come near. And then the language just kind of turns up the heat, so to speak. He uses two different images. One, uh, he says in verse 10, the axe is ready at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. He also uses the image of the threshing floor and burning up the chaff in an unquenchable fire. John brings a, an overwhelmingly ominous message here. It's not what we want to hear. In fact, I think the words of repent, the idea of an unquenchable fire, these are things which we really just do not feel comfortable with. We don't feel comfortable with that kind of message. But this is what John comes. This is how he's come preparing people. But there's a purpose behind this. You know, if you're driving along and you come to the entry to the freeway and you drive a little bit further under the underpass, you come to another, another road, which is the exit from the freeway. And when you get there, if, you, if, you, if, you've, if you've ever driven past one of these, you'll realise there are these huge signs. These signs, of course, don't say, look, when you have a moment, if you don't mind pulling over, turning around, 
and going the other way, sorry to inconvenience you, they say, stop! Wrong way! The intensity of the warning matches the problem at hand. And that's what John's doing here. He's preparing them by helping them to understand the urgency of what is now upon them. John is so important because he is God's way, actually God's gracious way of ensuring that these people are prepared, that they've stepped out of the way of the coming wrath, that they're not trampled upon by the judgment that's coming. And so as harsh as it feels, it's actually an act of graciousness by God to send John to the people at this point, to prepare them. It's not what we want to hear. I I suspect John the Baptist would not have been a great dinner guest. He's a fairly abrasive guy. He wouldn't have done small talk very well. But that wasn't his purpose in life. His purpose was single-mindedly to prepare people for the, for the arrival of Jesus. So the question is, if, if this is it, if the kingdom is coming, how do you prepare for it? How do people prepare? Prepare for the kingdom that comes? Well, the answer is in this fairly bizarre behaviour. Matthew says people went out to him, that's to John the Baptist from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptised by him in the Jordan River. How do they prepare for the arrival of the king? By going into the wilderness and dunking themselves in a river. Now, if you've grown up in church life, you know, baptism is a fairly common practice. You've certainly heard of it. You've probably seen it many times. We have a baptism font up there. It's one of the first things that they'll build when they build a church building is a place for people to be baptised. Uh, it doesn't seem that strange, but just think about what's happening here. People are travelling from the city into the wilderness to a river and then having some guy dressed in camel hair and a leather belt dunk them underwater. But that's, that's how you prepare, says John. And what's interesting is that this is not just a small group of people. This is not just a bunch of weirdos from a small little town. Matthew says they came from Jerusalem, from all of Judea and the whole region. In, in other words, they're coming from everywhere for this practice. But what becomes clear is that this practice of baptism is more than the practice. There's much more to it. You might have heard of baptism before, but the beauty of baptism is that it actually reflects something deeper. My, my, one of my old um, senior ministers uh, told the story of his, uh, his uh, father-in-law, who was himself a lovely, uh, godly Christian man. When he got married, though, he, he really hated jewellery, so he never wore a wedding ring. His wife did. She had a lovely, you know, wedding ring and an engagement ring. But he, he just didn't like jewellery and he didn't wear a wedding ring. So 50 years they're married. They get to their 50 wedding anniversary. He decides as an act of love to his wife that he's now going to wear a wedding ring. This is his way of kind of marking this special occasion. They buy a ring and he wears it. Now, of course, what makes that ring special is not that it's made of gold or silver. But the story, isn't it, that it reflects? 50 years of love and devotion and endurance. That ring, in a sense, means more at that point than it might have if he put it on on their wedding day. 
because it's symbolic of something deep. And so something greater is required to make baptism special. It's not just special because it's this weird activity that John the Baptist is doing out in the river. I mean, that's kind of how we operate now in our culture. Someone's doing something weird that no one else is doing. I'll go and do that. That'll make it worthwhile. But that's not the point here. What makes it special and what makes it unique is not just that a bunch of people did it outside of the kind of the realms of power and authority. It was the it wasn't the norm. And what makes it special is what it reflects. And what does it reflect for John? It reflects repentance. This concept of repentance, which Pippi started to touch upon in our in our spotlight segment. What is repentance though? You've probably heard it many times. You've prayed a prayer of repentance. We pray a prayer of repentance or confession in most of our Sunday services. What is repentance? Well, I think the story of John the Baptist can actually, uh, and and these events can help us maybe get some sense of what it is. First of all, repentance is an act of humility. Uh, We're told people went out for him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan. Now, see, in John's time, repentance was actually something you did if you were a Gentile. Kind of way of saying, I want to be with them. It wasn't like we think of it as, oh, that's a quintessentially Christian God thing to do. But actually, repentance was the thing you did when you were outside of the people of Jerusalem to become part of them. But these are Jews who are doing it. And so they're saying, we are like them, in need of being brought in, so to speak. It's an act of humility. Repentance is an act of humility. Secondly, it's not a passive thing, repentance. It says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptised, these are religious leaders of Jesus' time, he said to them, you brood of vipers! See what I mean? This guy's a really angular guy. Like, don't expect, don't expect a Christmas card from this guy. He said to them, you brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with the repentance. See, the Sadducees and the Pharisees have come to John to watch him, to see what's going on, the new fad. John says, you need your actions. You need to do something. You need to produce fruit, he says. Repentance is not a spectator sport. It's not something, oh, just because you're in the building when everyone else is praying the prayer, you're part of the package. Repentance is an active decision for there to be a real change in your life. That's what repentance looks like. It's not just some intellectual assent to a truth. Start to hear the warnings here as we hear what John's saying. Thirdly, we'd say that family isn't enough. Here's what he says. He goes, Do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. See, John says, don't think that just because you're Jewish by kind of inheritance or culture, you are therefore included. Repentance is a realisation that it doesn't matter what my family is. It doesn't matter what my church affiliation is or my membership is or my service is. There has to be a radical reorientation. I cannot rely on those things. Parents, your children, 
Your children are not safe from the coming judgment of God simply because you're a Christian. They're not. They must ultimately take hold of this faith themselves. Do not take it for granted. Just because you raised your kid in a Christian family doesn't mean that they exhibit real repentance. There must be a radical transformation of their heart. One writer, Jared Wilson, uh, surveys what repentance is in the Bible because it's a very common theme. Can we click across to the next slide? My clicker's dead. Um, it's, It's not just John the Baptist who talks about repentance. Jesus, of course, does in Mark. His ministry starts with repent and believe for the kingdom of God is here. The apostles, the writers of the New Testament letters, they talk about repentance regularly. This is a theme that runs through scripture and Jared Wilson surveying it comes up with some some themes, some ideas that we could capture repentance through. And it's a very challenging list. Look at this. He first of all says, repentance is that you name sin as sin and you do not excuse it. You name your sin as sin. You don't excuse it. You're transparent about your failings, actually. About your failings, our failings, right? We display a willingness to actually make amends. We're patient with those we've hurt, listening as they process our hurt. We're willing to confess even in the face of serious consequences to our sin. We grieve the consequences, but we do not resent them. What do you mean, sir? We, re- we, we don't find the consequences easy, but we don't get bitter about them either. We seek help for our sin. We do not resent accountability. We do not resent someone who holds us accountable for a new way of behaviour. And we are teachable. It's quite the list, actually, this list. I don't, know, I don't know if anyone in this building can say, yeah, all nine of those I'm okay with, actually. I tell you, number four, we're patient with those we've hurt, listening as they process. I find this very challenging. I am able to say sorry. What I really need from the other person is to move on. I need them to move on. After all, I've said sorry. So why can't they just, like, get over it? But what that is is not repentance. That's you just trying to get rid of your sense of grief and and guilt. You don't really care about them. You don't have space for them to process the hurt that you have brought upon them. But this is what repentance is, you see, because repentance is a radical reorientation of your heart. It simply cannot be, you cannot tick the box of repentance by by simply praying a prayer. Everything about you and your orientation to sin must change radically. You see, there's a great quote from John Stott in your booklets about this. And baptism to be the kind of activity that John has envisaged and to have the beauty and power of it must reflect this radical reorientation of our hearts. Next slide, please. Thanks, Jess. Sorry. It must reflect this radical reorientation of our heart. That's what makes baptism so special and profound in the Christian life. It is not special because it's done in a 150-year-old font. It is not special because it's done at Bondi Beach, which is where I was baptised. It's special because what it reflects is this radical change that has taken place in your heart. 
That's why it's power. That's why, that's why the ring matters, right? Because of what it points to. That's why baptism matters, because of what it points to. But here's the challenge. I find really challenging when I looked at that list, is my heart really capable of this? And I think the sobering response is no. One writer said we have to repent of our repentance because even that is flawed. But here's the thing. John the Baptist is here for a very clear purpose. Look what he says. Next verse, next slide. Oh, then my clicker works. Sorry, Jess. He says, I baptise you with the water for repentance. John is baptising them with something which, in the end, simply is a warning. Simply a warning about each of our inability, ultimately, to cast off our sin sufficiently. But after me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, and he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. A deeper baptism is required, you see, than a water baptism. A deeper baptism required than a baptism even of repentance, which calls to mind your sin. You need a baptism which is going to go in there and it's going to cleanse you and make you holy. You know what's really interesting in this story is John the Baptist dominates it for 12 verses or thereabouts, right? He's scolding the Pharisees, he's dunking people in water, he's dressed like a weirdo. And then Jesus arrives. And Jesus doesn't arrive preaching, unlike in other Gospels. He arrives to be baptised. He says, he says, Cousin John, can you baptise me? He says, Cousin Jesus, what? You should be baptising me, because of course he knows by a gift of the Holy Spirit who his cousin really is. He's the one he's preparing for. He doesn't baptise John, but Jesus then says this, if you flick to the next slide for me. He says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfil all righteousness. He says, John, just do this, my friend. Just, just do it because really it's important that I, I, I show that there is, there is nothing I'm unwilling to undergo in order to be righteous. I am completely obedient. Jesus says, Jesus goes through this baptism, you see, in order to show that every part of God's expectation of his servant, he will do. Even something as inane as being dunked in the Jordan River. He will do it. You know, the New Testament writers are at pains to point out that Jesus is sinless. These are men, Jewish men, who knew sin. They knew that humans couldn't be sinless, but they're happy to say of Jesus who's sinless. And their sin, and his sinlessness is not just um, he, he he was always nice to people and and they they couldn't find a sin that he it was actually this active obedience he did everything that might have been expected of one of God's people and and his baptism is a is a symbol of this it, it's a, it's a reflection of this but the Bible interestingly the Gospels actually have Jesus baptized twice did you know that? He's baptised here in the Jordan. But then later, if you flick to the next slide for me, 
He's bap- in Luke 12 and Mark 10, Jesus speaks about his death as his baptism. He says to the disciples, can you be baptised with the baptism I have? He means, can you die the death I have? Can you go to the cross and suffer what I'm about to suffer? There's actually these two baptisms in Jesus' life. But there's a very important connection between these two. There's a very important connection. Next slide. See, the first baptism shows us that Jesus lived perfectly as one of us. And because he did that, then when he is baptised the second time, he is capable of dying for us. Of dying for us, you see. He's capable of going and being plunged into death itself and judgment and yet to come out victorious, to be unmarked ultimately by death and to do this for us. Last month, end of December, Emily and I were in a very serious car accident. We had a head-on collision on the um, Harbour Bridge. Unfortunately, we didn't make the news, um, but we fortunately... We didn't get injured, and no one else did. Um, we, we, we were driving a four-year-old vehicle, you know, a Volkswagen, very safe, seven airbags, etc. right? Had a head-on accident. Um, before you get to the Harbour Bridge, because of all the work they're doing in the Ringer Freeway, there's this very um, challenging merge point. I don't know if you've gone through it. You're going, they're going, and God bless the traffic planners... There is no signage there to work out which lane of traffic give way to the other. I can see you all nodding. You've all, you've all, you've all seen your life flash before you at this moment. And so you arrive at this point, right, this intersection, and you think, is it me or is it, is it you? You know, and you kind of do this, someone eventually goes, right? Anyway, we come to this intersection on the, on the day of the accident. It's just 100 metres from where we ended up having the accident. Come to this intersection. There I am driving in our car and... There's this other guy who's driving this, like, 20-year-old RAV4 with a red P-plate. And unusually, he gives way to me. (laughs) I say, okay, great. Off I drive. Anyway, 10, 15 seconds later, someone hits a, a car coming our way from the side. They drive onto our side of the road. Head on accident. Airbags go off. Talcum powder flying all through the chamber of the car. You know, we're all dazed uh, after about a couple of minutes of feverishly calling, you know, triple zero. We kind of stumble out of the car. I kind of look around. I look behind me. There's the young guy in the RAV4. His face is so pale. He's, He's stopped behind us. He's thinking... That could have been me. Except he said, you go first, I'll follow. When we let Jesus go first and we follow after him, he has the resources, you see, to take us through death and through judgment and into life. Because he's perfect. His righteousness is complete. And baptism is actually far more about riding on the coattails of Jesus Christ's righteousness than your repentance. And the beauty of being baptised, you see, 
is not how well you've repented, but that you have in that moment taken hold of Jesus and gone on the journey with him. And you will survive that journey, you see. Because only he is capable of going through death and judgment into life. And the beauty of being baptised is saying, Lord Jesus, you go first, I'll follow. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he is just, he is perfect in righteousness. All that we need but never could be. And we thank you that we have the privilege and joy and the relief of being able to follow him. Lord, would you mark us with your spirit and so enable us to allow Jesus to go first and us to take hold of him and be brought through death and judgment into life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.